Thank you for praying, Carol. That Our prayer petition has become one of my favorite things in our service, so thank you for praying. Um, well, I'm back. That was quick. Um, it's, uh, I'm glad you're here. Merry Christmas. Um, if I, if I think there's some new people here this morning, so if I haven't met you, my name's Jake Reefer. I'm the youth director here at Spring Run. Um, and I'll just say two quick things to orient us to our passage before I read it and we get into it. One is that we're in a series called Waiting and Resting on God. Um, it's been a shorter series, but we've been looking at these passages in, in which there are stories of people who are waiting for God to do something, waiting for God to show up. And so it might be Israel waiting for deliverance from her enemies or from her from armies. It might be Zechariah and Elizabeth waiting to have a child. It might be Simeon waiting to see the Savior that he's been promised to see. And when we come to these kinds of stories, our natural inclination is to ask the question, why is God making me wait? Like, in all of these stories, it's something, that the thing that is desired, the thing that's being waited for is a good thing. And so the question we come to naturally is, God, why are you making me wait? Just make this happen right now. Um, but what Andrew set up for us in the first week is that the better question is not, why are you making me wait, God, but what might you be doing in my life as I wait? What might you be doing in and through me as I wait? And we'll see that in this story today. Um, because God doesn't merely save us, forgive our sins so that you can just kind of keep going and being a more self-righteous version that you were before your sins were forgiven. He saves us so that he might make us into particular kinds of people, that he might change us, that we might become more and more his. Um, and often that's happening while we wait. So that's the first thing is that we are... Um, we're in the middle of this series. We're near the end of this series. The second thing is that today is New Year's Eve. It's the last day of the year. Um, and you may not be a resolution person. I'm not a resolution person. I was just sitting there thinking, actually, like, huh, if this is, what if this is everybody's last day in church? The resolution is, I'm not coming to church anymore, so I've got to do this on the last day. Um, that was a weird thought that I had. But um, <laughs> I, hope that's not, I hope that's not the case. Um, but regardless of whether or not you're a resolution person and you're going to make some dramatic change in your life tomorrow, um, which might be not coming to church anymore, um, I've really got to get off of that. Um, I think that a lot of people use this as a time to review the past year. Like, did this year go the way that I wanted it to? Did the things that I hoped would happen this year happen? Did I become the person I wanted to be? Did I accomplish the things I wanted to accomplish? Did I... Did, I, did people see me the way that I hoped that they would see me? And it's kind of this annual review of our year. And today, the story we're going to read is about a woman who comes every year to the same place and at the same time realizes that she has not become the person that she wanted to be. That the things that she wanted to happen in her life have not happened. And she is in despair and she's waiting. But we're also going to see how God uses that long process to reveal some broken areas in her life, but also to change her. And he does that through prayer. Um, and and the, we're going to see that when, when we are waiting for God to show up, we often tend to use prayer to try and change God, to try to use him like a vending machine to give us the things that we want. But in this passage, we'll see that prayer is an act of surrender. It's a way that God changes us. So uh, we're going to see what we need to surrender, how we can surrender, and who we need to surrender to. Let me read our passage this morning. It's a longer one, so try to stick with it, but it is a story. So 1 Samuel 1, starting in verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim from the country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, 
son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were the priests of the Lord. On the day where Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart set? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. I'm going to skip down to the beginning of chapter 2 and read the first ten verses. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we start the story with a woman named Hannah. And Hannah is obviously extremely unhappy. And it tells us why she's unhappy. She's not able to get pregnant. But we need to dig a little bit deeper than just that to understand why she is so unhappy and so dissatisfied with her life. 
we need to understand why getting pregnant was so important to her in the first place. Um, because we can relate to Hannah's struggle on, uh, on just a kind of a modern world level, is that infertility is a struggle in the ancient world, and it is a struggle today. It's one of the most consistent things between the Old Testament and our times, um, is that it, that remains an issue. And we can relate to that because planning to get pregnant is not like most other decisions in life, where if it happens, great. If it doesn't, oh well. It is an intensely personal decision to get pregnant, and it has so much to do with your hopes and dreams about how you hope life is going to go, the kind of person that you're going to be, the kind of things that are going to happen in your life. And, and to, to struggle with infertility is immensely personal, immensely, um, it can rattle just kind of the foundation of how you see yourself. And so we get that on that level. But there's other things happening here um, based on Hannah's culture that make this even more personal and more, um, for that make her more unhappy. Um, so uh, in one of his sermons on this passage, Tim Keller points out some of the reasons that uh, having lots of babies was such a cultural ideal in the ancient world. Um, and he actually says that anybody who was having lots of babies in the ancient world was a cultural hero. And he points out at least three reasons. One is that the more children you had, um, the better things were for you economically. Basically, the more kids you had, the more employees you had. The more, the more people you had to do the things that needed to get done so that you could make more money, that's true in your family, true in the world. We see that now. Nations with declining populations are, are struggling economically, and ones with rising populations, things are good. It's just how things work. Um, but second, the more children you had, the more likely you were to live to an old age comfortably. Um, the more people had to take care of you, um, the more likely you were able, you're going to be able to make it a little, a little ways longer than most. But third... Unless the women in a nation were, were fertile and were having lots of babies, a nation was not going to have enough people to, to have an army to defend themselves. And so the more kids that a nation was having, the bigger your army could be, the, the greater chance you had of surviving as a nation. And so for all those reasons, for a woman to have a baby in the ancient world was not just about a personal decision of, I'd really like to be a mother. It was the best possible thing you could do for society. It was best for the economics, it was best for the family, it was best for the, the nation. Um, was the best possible thing that you could be doing as a woman. And every year, so, so Hannah is not just not meeting her personal standards, she's not meeting the cultural standards. The culture is saying, this is the best thing you can do for society and for your family and for the world. And every year, Hannah goes to worship and she is confronted with the fact that, yet again, I've not met my personal ideals, and yet again, I have not met the cultural ideals. I'm not the person that society says I should be. Um, and you might be tempted to think, thank goodness we live in the modern world and we don't put that kind of pressure on women to have lots of babies anymore. Thank goodness for the modern world. Two things I want to say about that real quick. One is, um, well, yeah, our general culture doesn't put that kind of pressure on women to have lots of babies anymore. Um, there are subcultures that do. One of them is often church, to be totally honest. There's, the church can be pretty good about saying verbally, like, hey, we welcome one and all. You know, whether you're single or you have family or no family, come on into the church and then make all, do all kinds of things that subtly tell people, actually, you don't quite fit the cultural ideal of the church, whether that's through the people that we invite over, the kind of events that we do, and say, you know what, yes, you are technically welcome, but you're not really fitting the mold of the kind of person that best fits in with our culture. And we have to be careful about that as a church, especially in the suburbs, that that's not what we're communicating to people in our church, is that actually there's a cultural ideal that you don't meet. 
So this does exist today in certain places, like the church. But our society at large may not put that standard on the whole culture, but our society at large puts tremendous pressure on women in all kinds of other ways. Um, I mean, if, uh, we, we put all kinds of pressure on women to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to go out and have a fulfilling career and then be a beacon of hope to their children and to the world and to society. I mean, amazing amounts of pressure put on women to go do and be certain things. And one of the manifestations of that, I'll just say adults, you, you may know this from personal experience, you may know this from reading, the number of young girls with eating disorders in our society is out of control. I, I was reading this week, um, at age 6 to 10, girls start to worry about their weight. And by 14, 60 to 70 percent are trying to lose weight. At age 14, 60 to 70 percent are trying to lose weight. That is insane. And what is that? Is that because we don't put cultural, we don't put any pressure on people to meet some kind of ideal? I don't think so. I mean, this is anecdotal too, but also boys, young boys, the amount of boys who um, are obsessed with going to the gym, protein supplements, other workout supplements, that is not something I have ever experienced before in the way that I see it now. And, and that, those are manifestations of what I'm talking about, is we may not put those cultural expectations of having lots of big families on people, but we do put other cultural expectations on people. And, and when our kids see that, and they see it more than they've ever seen it, they're tormented that they cannot reach this unrealistic ideal. And so our culture does project ideals onto people. Um, and Hannah has bought into her cultural ideal, just like so many of us buy into the cultural ideal that is projected um, in the world. And she believes that if she could just have a baby, that she could be the kind of person she wanted to be. She could have a meaningful life. Um, that she'd be helpful to her family, helpful to her society. So after all that, what does Hannah need to surrender? She does not... Her problem is not really that she isn't having a child. That's not actually her main problem. Her, her problem is that she believes that having a child would make her life meaningful, that it would make it valuable. That is what she has to surrender, and that's what she's going to surrender. That is the belief beneath all idols, is not that this thing is a good thing, but that this thing would change my life. This would give me meaning and purpose. That is the belief beneath all idols. So that's what Hannah needs to surrender. But how can she actually do that? Um, so what, what does Hannah do? First of all, I do want to point out what Hannah doesn't do, first of all, because I think this is important for us. Um, notice there's three different people in the story who um, essentially propose reasons to Hannah for why she's upset and what she should do. The first one is Peninnah, her, her co-wife, I guess you would call her. Um, we don't have time to get into, into that. Um, that's one of the reasons Hannah is probably so... It's so miserable is because she's in a polygamous marriage, which is what happens in all polygamous marriages in the Bible, is everybody's miserable. Um, but uh, Peninnah is described as, as Hannah's tormentor, her tormentor. Peninnah basically says, she, she's the representation of what we're talking about. Peninnah is saying, here's the cultural ideal. I'm meeting it. Other women are meeting it, and you're not. Look how terrible you are. She's basically saying the reason you're unhappy is because you're not good enough. You're not enough. And that's the reason that you're so upset. Now, the natural response to having someone tell you that is self-pity, despair, and depression. To say, yeah, you're right. I don't meet the standard. I guess I'm terrible. But Hannah doesn't do that. I mean, she's obviously very torn up in her life. But she does not stay there. 
she moves past despair and towards prayer. And that rhymed. I didn't mean that. Um, uh, she doesn't stay in self-pity. She moves on. Um, the second person, though, is her husband, who is like the poster boy for how husbands should never respond to your wife when she is telling you something that is deeply personal that she's struggling with. Because he basically says, you know why you're unhappy? It's because you want the wrong thing. You shouldn't put all this value in having kids. You should put your value in having a great marriage. Your problem is you're not, you're not, in, you don't, you're not satisfied enough with our marriage and with me, um, which is a pretty crazy thing to say to your wife. Um, but that's what he says. And now the natural response to that, if you're Hannah, is to get angry. Like, are you kidding me? You're telling me that my problem is that I want kids? Having kids is a good thing. The Bible tells us having kids is a great thing. Um, but she doesn't lash out in anger. Again, she goes to pray. But the third person is Eli, this priest, who says, you know, he's like this lazy pastor, basically, who someone comes to the church and, and is struggling. And he says, instead of asking questions and figuring out what's going on, just says, I think I know what your problem is. You're drinking too much. That's your problem is you're sinning. And he basically tells her, you know, the reason that you're unhappy is because you're sinning. And if you would just cut out some sinful habit, you'll be happy again. That, that's basically your problem. But now the interesting thing about that is that Hannah is a sinner. And she would know that she's a sinner, but she knows enough to know that that is not at the root of her problem. Some, some separate sin is not the thing that is at the root of her issue here. And she's actually this model of, um, loving confrontation of a spiritual authority who misunderstands you. Um, unfortunately, one of the things that typically happens when spiritual authorities misrepresent or misunderstand or misdiagnose you is people actually believe it, and they put shame and guilt on themselves about something that they don't need to. But Hannah doesn't do that. She doesn't accept shame over something that is not true of her, um, and she lovingly corrects Eli. So those are not, she doesn't react in self-pity and depression, she doesn't react in anger, and she doesn't react in shame and guilt. That's incredible. Those are the three things that we, that we are most naturally do when we realize that we're not living up to the kind of person that we always wanted to be. She doesn't do those things. Instead, she prays, and it is an amazing prayer. It is one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible. Um, First of all, I just want to say just about the vulnerability of the prayer. The English gets at some of it, but the, the, um, the original language really highlights some of this. So verse 10, she, it says that she wept bitterly, and that's a way in the Hebrew of trying to translate she wept weeping. It puts the two verbs next to each other to try to say, I mean, she really wept. I mean, she sobbed. This is the hardest that you can cry. She wept and wept and wept. Um, Verse 13 says that she was praying in her heart and only her lips were moving. Literally, it's, it's, she's not even mouthing the words. It says that she, her lips are quivering and shaking. She's not even, she's not even mouthing the words properly um, because she's so locked into her prayer. In verse 15, uh, after Eli accuses Hannah of being drunk, or like, you know, you're pouring wine into yourself, she actually says, no, I'm pouring myself out in the presence of the Lord. I'm not pouring wine into myself. I'm pouring myself out like wine on the floor in front of God. I'm, all of me is exposed. I'm thin before the Lord. I am completely exposed. But the content of the prayer is just as important. I mean, the, the vulnerability of the prayer is important because structured prayers, planned prayers, thought-out prayers are good. But there's a time for vulnerable prayer where you are completely undone before the Lord and there is no you almost have no sense of what's going on with your body, that you are just so um, exposed before the Lord. But the content of the prayer is just as important. So verse 11, Hannah asks God to look deeply into her. Again, the, the two verbs together. L look with looking at me. 
Um, Look intensely at me, God, she says, uh, at your suffering servant. And she asks God to take this true, honest look at her. And then she makes this agreement with God. Um, And she says, you know, God, if you give me a child, I'll dedicate him as a Nazarite, basically, which is like a voluntary priest. Um, Now, making deals and agreements with God is not unusual in the Old Testament. What is somewhat unusual is the way that she does it. There's a commentator, Victor Hamilton, who points out that most of the time when people make agreements with God, they say something like, God, if you will do X for me, I will do Y for you. If you give me X, I will give you Y. Um, It's an exchange of things that are not equivalent. But Hannah's agreement with God is unique because she says, God, if you give me X, I will give you X. If you give me a son, I will give you a son. That that is not common in the Old Testament. What is, she, what is she saying? She's saying, God, if you give me a son, I promise that he will not belong to me. God, if you give me a son, I promise that he won't mean more to me than you. I promise that he will belong to you. Hannah doesn't pray that God would just take her desire for a son away. She prays that God reshapes and reorients her desire. She says, God, I do still want a son, but I realize that I need a son less than I need you. That I, a son is not the ultimate thing in my life. I want you more than I want kids. Now, if you have to realize, if Hannah had gotten a child before she has this breakthrough, her life would have been miserable. She would have gotten what she wanted, and she would have tried to squeeze the life out of it, because that's where she thought life was. That if she'd had kids, she would have, her whole life would have been about getting and keeping her kids. She would have put really high expectations and demands on her kids, because that's where she thought life was, And it wouldn't take long to realize that kids don't really give you all that life. And she would would try to squeeze it for everything it was worth. Her life would have been miserable. Her children would have been idols. And I think that this is very applicable to our cultural setting. And I might step on some toes here, and I'm somewhat sorry for that. But um, parents, the truth is a lot of you make idols out of your children. A lot of us parents make idols out of our children. I mean, an idol is just a good thing, like Hannah wanting to have kids, made into an ultimate thing. Kids will give me meaning. And loving your kids and wanting your kids to succeed is a good thing. My last sermon on the fifth commandment, I told your kids, you need to learn how to work hard or you'll ruin your life. And I believe that that is biblical. But parents, I worry sometimes that if someone were to do an audit of our life and they put, they put work in school and eating and sleeping to the side, the things that you have to do, They would audit our lives and say, it looks based on how you spend your time and your money and your kids' time, the most important thing to you in life is making sure that your kids succeed. And we can, we can, I mean, the religious devotion some of us have to getting our kids on the best teams and the best schools, getting the best grades and into the best colleges is, is out of control. And we can blame the culture and we can say, Jake, you don't understand. If my kids aren't in all AP and IB classes, they're not going to get into the schools that they're supposed to get into. If Jake, you don't understand, to be on a competitive sports team, they have to travel on the weekends, and they have to be gone all this time. That's just what it is. Or Jake, you don't understand, if they're going to be in that group or in, in that choir or whatever, they have to be in a group that meets for six hours after school every day. And I know that means they're doing school at 9 p.m. until 12 a.m., but that's just what it is. That's just how, you, that's just how our culture works now. And we can blame the culture and say that, but the fact is that God always holds us accountable for, be, for being complicit with culture. When the Israelites move in next door to the Canaanites, 
and the Israelites start doing the things that their neighbors are doing and living the life that their neighbors are living, God doesn't just say, ah, culture's hard, do your best. He judges them for it. He exiles them for it. We're always complicit for, for absorbing the idols of our culture and trying to live up to those. So, like Hannah, we've got lots of idols. It may not be kids for you, it may be something else, but we've got lots of idols that we are complicit in just aligning ourselves with. And like Hannah, the only way we'll ever be free from those is through the radical act of prayer, because prayer is not something where we get God and get him to give something to us, but by which God changes us. Now, um, a lot of what I've said so far, you could put in a self-help book. The de-religious version of this would be something like, you're unhappy because you've personally accepted culture standards of you, and the way out of that is to, through some kind of meditation or prayer practice in which you surrender those things to the universe, and then you'll be self-actualized. You could put that in a self-help book. It's in lots of them. Um, but uh, that, and that's basically a Buddhist way of looking at the world. Your problem is desire, and if you get rid of desire, you'll be happy. But that's not what Hannah's doing here, and if you think that's what she's doing here, you're missing the point. Um, the reason that Hannah can surrender in this passage is because she has a particular person in mind. She is not surrendering to the universe. She is thinking about someone in particular, and there's at least two major clues to who she thinks she's surrendering here. I'm going to get a little detail on this. Some of you will love this. Some of you will start to zone out, but, but try to hang in there. I think this is important. And two times in 1 Samuel 1, God is called the Lord of hosts, and that's the person that Hannah addresses in her prayer. Now, that, it's the first time that that appears in the Old Testament. It's used many times after. Hosts refers to armies, and so Lord of hosts is God's war title. It is, it is the title of God when he is going out against his enemies to destroy them, and that sometimes that's, that's literal in battles, but often it's spiritual in that God is the one who leads the armies of his people into spir against spiritual darkness. And it's the title that Hannah uses in her prayer because Hannah does not just see herself surrendering something to some vague idea of the universe, but she's surrendering herself to the God who will fight for her, the, fight, the God who will deliver her from evil. And so that's the first thing. She's praying to the God who fights. Very particular God. But the second thing is, in Hannah's song in chapter 2, if, you, if you'll put up verse, um, verse 1 of chapter 2, actually, Hannah um, she says at the very beginning of her song, which is that my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. That's a way of saying my strength is in God. And then if you go to the last verse of the song, verse 10, she says, um, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So at the beginning she says my strength is in the Lord, and at the end she's essentially saying the Lord's strength is in his anointed. Now, the Hebrew word for anointed is what we say in English, Messiah, or what we would say in Greek is Christ. Now, who is this anointed one? In the context of the passage, it's almost certainly referring to David and the kingly line that will come in Israel that starts in 1 Samuel. But if it's merely referring to David, that's pretty disappointing because if you read the Bible, you find out that every single one of the kings, including David, are deeply, deeply flawed people. And that if those are the people that we're praying to and hoping will save us in life, you are doomed. You are doomed with or without them. Um, and so uh, their, their flaws actually point to the need for a perfect king. 
perfect king who will be able to do everything. Now, if you're a Jewish person, you read this passage, you'd say, yeah, it's talking about David, and we're still waiting for the real anointed one, the real Messiah, the real Christ to come. But as Christians, we don't say that. Because 2,000 years ago, another Jewish girl sings a very similar song in Luke chapter 1. Her name is Mary. The song is so similar to Hannah's song in so many ways. It's very significant. But in her song, she does not mention the anointed. She does not mention the Messiah. Why not? Because she is singing this song in response to finding out that she is carrying God's son. And she's singing this song saying, yes, God will raise up the humble and he will destroy the proud. She doesn't need to say that this is going to happen in the anointed because she just found out who the anointed is. It is the son of God who she is carrying. Now, if you're someone who thinks, I can kind of get all this Christian stuff that Jake is talking about um, without having to do their worship stuff with their God stuff, follow all their rules, I want you to think about what you're missing here. If you just think, I can surrender all my bad expectations to the universe and I'll be happy, look at what you're missing here. If you just surrender your desires up to the universe, you're still living out of your own strength. You're, still, you're basically swapping one set of ideals and saying, this set of ideals and expectations of my life, the things that I think will make life meaningful, those, are, uh, those aren't working, so I'm going to swap them out for a different one. And you're still ultimately trying to live out of your own strength, trying to fix your own problems, and you're just swapping one set of ideals for another. But Hannah is not doing that. She is surrendering to a God she believes will show up in her life as a person. A God who sees her pain and struggle and is going to do something about that. She can give up her deepest desires, her deepest longings, and say, I surrender those because she believes that there is a God who in the end will satisfy all of her deepest longings. She's not getting rid of her desires. She's submitting her desires to God and saying, God, I believe that my desires and my longings, they actually point to you. And I believe that you are a God who will satisfy every deep longing that I've ever had. The ones that I don't even know where they come from, the longings that I have to, to know people and to be known, these things that, that drive me in all kinds of directions in life, I believe God that you are the one who will satisfy those because you are the one who made them and you are the one who will set all things right in the end. For most of Hannah's life, she believed that would, would, what would change her life would be a change in circumstances. For her, that meant having a baby. If I could just have a baby, my life circumstances change and my life would get better. I'd have meaning, I'd have purpose. But what she comes to realize is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, which is that contentment does not come from a circumstance change. It comes from a strength change. That's exactly what Hannah does in her prayer. She surrenders the strength that she has. She's been putting in being a mother someday. She's been saying, all of my, all of my eggs are in this basket, that my circumstances will change someday, and I'll find purpose, and I'll find meaning. But in her prayer, she says... Actually, no. I'm not going to go win a victory for my life. I am going to hold on to the coattails of the Messiah, and when he wins the victory, I will win the victory. That will be where my satisfaction comes from. That will be where my hope comes from. And this giving up your strength and accepting Christ's strength, that is all that Christianity is about, is surrendering your strength and accepting the strength of Christ for you. C.S. Lewis says it this way, Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, 
death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Christianity is not about surrendering desire and becoming some faceless kind of just blasé person. It is about surrendering your deepest desires to Christ because you know that in him they will be met to the full in ways that you never could have dreamed that they'd be met. Not because you're living out of your own strength, but because you're living out of his strength. So have you surrendered? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Or are you in a place right now where you're like, yes, I have given my life to Christ, I have faith in him, but I am not living in a position of surrender at all right now. I am living holding on to everything that I have, trying to keep it for myself. If that's you right now, surrender. Come to the Messiah. He's your strength. There is nothing that you uh, will not lose from yourself. When you give yourself up, there's nothing that you lose that you will not gain tenfold in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word and for your servant Hannah. God, what a, what a courageous, long-suffering woman she was. Thank you that she shows us not what, uh, not what difficult what people do in difficult circumstances which is just try harder thank you that she doesn't show us that she was an extraordinary person who got out of extraordinary circumstances and, and, and somehow found a fulfilled life but God thank you that she is a beacon that in surrender we find real life thank you that she is an example of someone who gave up putting faith in herself or putting faith in her future and put it in your Messiah God would we do that we submit ourselves to you. We surrender ourselves to you. Not to some vague idea of a universe out there that doesn't care about us, but to the personal God who made us. And Lord, we ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ.